1: Wyman Winbush is known as the Wisdom Broker. He's a retired Navy captain with over 30 years of service. He's a retired IBM executive of 31 years. He's been teaching and ministering the gospel for over 30 years. And he's recently celebrated 32 years of marriage to Rosemary. Tighten up your life jacket. We're going deep with the Wisdom Broker on Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. This is straight talk you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Galen Bingham, and this is the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership podcast. Cheers. So let's let's go ahead and get into it again, because you guys know that this is where we have real conversations about what leadership is. And so I've invited a real OG of the game. I'm going to talk about my my experience here. You know, I've had the luxury of working for some pretty significant brands, and some pretty big companies. One of the things I learned very early on is you gotta find the people that have survived at a high level for a long time, and then pull them aside. And if you, if you, you know, ask polite and mind your manners, they may tell you the real deal about what's going on. That's who I got with me here today to share with you guys. Mr. Wyman Winbush, you guys have heard a little bit about his background, but when I first met this guy, it was at a speakers conference and he just had this air about him that he's been around for a while, he's seen a lot. He knows where a lot of the buried, uh, where a lot of the bodies are buried. So, I made it a point to introduce myself and wouldn't you know, this guy knows a lot about a lot. <laughs> so with that, Wyman, I want to welcome you into this conversation. Welcome to the show. Uh, you know, I was just saying to you, I've been looking forward to this conversation because, you know, you and I have been part of a, a of a couple of different panels uh, over the past year and a half or so. And, you know, my suspicions were right. You know a lot about a lot. So welcome to the show. And one of the first questions I want to ask, what are you drinking? Well, um, you know, one of the things I know a little
0: bit about is the Navy. The the Navy, I spent 30 years there and the official beverage, if you would, at our formal Navy gatherings is usually port. So a a good tawny port is good uh, for me. It's a fortified wine, usually fortified with brandy. And the reason... Uh, They originally started to do that was the brandy lengthens the shelf life of the wine, right? So before you had all those preservatives and things, they would add, you know, uh, brandy or some other hard liquor
1: to the wine to uh, increase its longevity for those long trips on ships. You know, we've already learned something. We haven't even gotten into the conversation yet. I've already learned something. From the wisdom broker, Uh, I had to reach to my top shelf on this one. I I decided that I was going to pull out this blood oath pack number one. And a a lot of people who drink whiskeys and bourbons, and particularly if you've ever come across this blood oath, uh, you're going to be impressed that I'm drinking blood oath pack number one. Because right now you can't find pack number one. You can only find, I think they're like up to pack number five and and pack number six is soon to be released. And before you get really, really impressed, I'm going to admit something. I bought this maybe five years ago and it was the only pack that was on the shelf. And so I got it. I drank it pretty quickly. I loved it. So I went back and bought two more and just had them on my shelves for years and years and years. And when I got to this, to this one that I'm going to open up today, it was my last one. And so I went back to the store to get an inventory and I couldn't find them. I could only find, I think they were up to pack number three and maybe four. And I kept holding out, looking for pack number one. So now here I am, this was 2015, you know, here we are. Six years later, and this is like some special stuff that's hard to find. And I'm I'm gonna nurse this until I just can't do it anymore. So let me go ahead and.
0: And, I, and I'm sure if I was in your home, you'd you have needed a step ladder,
1: to get to the top shelf. Not not necessarily a step ladder, but but definitely a lock and key, right? Yes. <laughs> but let me let me just go ahead and get this one get this one started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This, this, this is what I'm going to need for this conversation, because as rare as it is to find blood oath pack number one, it's even more rare to find two people who have been in corporate America for as long as you and I have been that have some shared experiences that you and I have. And that are willing to share that experience because a lot of people who have don't share. Uh, you know, as I enjoy this, uh, I would love for you to just share a little bit more about your background and how you earned this name, the wisdom broker. Oh, man, that's a great question. I, I
0: always tell people there's a difference between having 30 years of experience and experiencing the same thing for 30 years. And you know the diversity of experiences allows you uh, to have that thirty years of experience. It's not one-dimensional. Mine is a you know typical case. I'm you know Naval Academy graduate, helo pilot, spent um, thirty total years in the Navy between active duty and reserves. In my eighth year, I uh, left active duty and went to IBM, and I spent thirty-one years in the IBM. During that entire time at IBM. I was very engaged as a speaker, being inspired by the likes of uh, Jim Rohn and Dennis Waitley and Zig Ziglar, Les Brown, you know, Willie Jolly. I realized a lot of what they were saying, you know, resonated with me, uh, not just understanding it, but gave me a desire to go out and share what they were sharing. You know, that was the impetus a catalyst for me becoming a speaker. So I've been a member of the National Speakers Association for the last 25 years, imparting what I know about wisdom and finance and life in general. I've always been fascinated with wisdom. Man, there's something that caught my eye in the Bible that says wisdom is more precious than rubies and gold. And man, what is it about that? It doesn't make you want some. And so what I found, Galen, uh, this is interesting, you know, if you had $100 in your pocket when you rose in the morning and decided to give $1 out to everyone you met, by the time you got to the 101st person, you have nothing left, because you only had $100. If you had $100 worth of wisdom and you decide to give it out to everyone, you don't have to limit yourself to $1, but you can give it all to each one you meet. And when you get to the 101st person, You'll have more wisdom than you started with because every time you share it, that wisdom becomes more profound, more refined, and more useful, not only to you, but the people that you share it with. How could you not cherish wisdom? And if you have it, how could you not want to broker it out to everyone that you meet? That's how the name wisdom broker comes. And so I'm always one to drop nuggets wherever I can
1: that was a great example of how today's generation would say that a little differently you know i believe that a lot of people that are in the game today they would say as soon as you learn something uh, and you get some information that works protect it guard it make sure that no one else learns about it so that you can use it for your competitive advantage I mean, that's what I hear on all of the investment shows. That's what I hear on all of the strategy discussions that I sit in. I kind of agree with you, but it's a different perspective than what we're hearing today. It is a different perspective. And let me tell you, you talk about nuggets on leadership. Now, here's one for you.
0: You know, the adage, particularly in corporate America, in a capitalistic society, it's very competitive. In other words, I'm going to go get my piece of the pie, is what people proclaim. That mindset implies that there's only one pie, and the piece of the pie I get will be at someone else's expense. I take another approach. I believe I have a a pie with my name on it, and Galen has a pie with his name on it. And the objective should be to enlarge the size of our individual pies. Therefore, I'm compelled to share what I have with you So you can have a bigger pie and in sharing it, like I said, the more I share wisdom, the wiser I get. My pie will become bigger as well. We're not competing against each other. We're competing to enlarge the size of our own pie. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. And what I have is not at your expense.
1: Why would we dare fight over the same slice of pie when there's a whole one out there for us? Mm Mm-hmm you know, if I could just build a little bit uh, on what you just said, I've got my pie in front of me. You've got your pie in front of you. I'm going to share with you how I maximize how I get the most of my pie. I'm going to share that with you so you can get the most of your pie. And if you come up with any other ideas that I haven't come up with, I'm going to ask you to share that with me so I can get more of my pie than I might have been thinking about before. Man, I'll tell you that I'm going to steal from from Wyman here. That would preach, man. (laughs) Yes, it would. That is the genesis
0: or the the foundation or cornerstone of mastermind groups, a group of like-minded, high-achieving people who feel comfortable enough to be transparent with each other, to expose their flaws and receive feedback from each other, knowing when they come together they lead wiser, smarter, and better equipped and enabled to enlarge each individual's pie. All right. So I'm going to stay with the Navy theme. You know, you spend 30, 30 years in the Navy, you can't get out of your system. When the tide comes in, all boats in the basin rise. When the tide comes in, all boats in the basin rise. And the, and the, the tide is represented by each individual in that mastermind group or in that select group that you like to hang out with. When all of them come together and share their collective wisdom, it will always exceed the individual wisdom of the individuals in the group. And when you share with each other, everyone goes out wiser than they did before they came together. And that's what hanging out with the right people does. And this is why also the smartest people, the best leaders, are intentional about hanging out with people who know more than they do. The, the smarter person comes in the group, they're gonna walk away with something that they didn't come to the party with.
1: Here's an opportunity for you to help me with some real time, literally today. Uh, I was working with a client and the client said, "You know, hey, look, I- I'm in this space and I feel like I've got a lot to offer feel like there are people around me who believe I've got a lot to offer, but they seem to be intimidated when I bring my best. And I am sure with your 30 years in corporate America, you've experienced that feeling of, you know, how much do I share? Do I really hit them with my best stuff? Uh, Although when I do, it seems to make folks around me nervous. How would you advise me to advise my, my client, because she, she she may be listening, what advice would you give to someone who's in the midst of that right now, where every time I give my best in the pursuit of trying to advance the corporate mission, everyone seems to get nervous because my best is is more than they can keep up with, presumably, how would you advise her?
0: Man, what a great question. That was a setup. You didn't give me that before we started this conversation. And shame on you, right? You know what? As I think about that, I'm torn between two references. One reference reminds us, I think um, uh, Marianne Williamson is, is captured in her poem. It does no one good to play small, right? Because from a faith perspective, If God gave you great gifts, how can you glorify him by hiding them or marginalizing them to make other people feel comfortable, right? And so in many ways, if you have a great gift, it's almost a gift back to God to display that gift in its glory. Also, when you display great gifts, you inspire and encourage others to step up their game, Right. So you want to create an environment in, in in a organization that you belong to, that everyone celebrates the greatness within each member of the group. They're not intimidated by excellence, but they're inspired by excellence. That, that's the atmosphere that you want to do. And, and, and you do that as a leader by celebrating the excellence in everyone so the next person that speaks or presents may not be as good but they did something excellent so you highlight that and then you encourage people and then you put them on display right by saying wow that was an excellent presentation could you share with the group how you perfected that gift what did you do to set yourself apart so now they are opening up the kimono and sharing the secrets with everyone. And and the thing about this is when you do that, everyone's not gonna make the effort to get there, right? So you can tell somebody how to get to the vein of gold that everyone's seeking after, but not everyone's willing to pick up an ax and chisel to get there. But everyone has an opportunity, right? And so when you do it that way, it says, hey, if you wanna be as good as them and get the accolades they get, you need to do what they do. I believe the first time I heard this was Les Brown. He said, if you want to have what other folks won't have, you must do what others aren't willing to do, right? And so you, you you turn that excellence, you flip the script a little bit, and instead of allowing them to hate on the person with excellence, they're looking in the mirror, and they got to hate on themselves because they're making a conscious decision not to do what's necessary to get
1: there. I absolutely agree with that on so many different levels, because a lot of times when folks are intimidated by you, it's because of that look in the mirror. It's not because of something that you did. It's because when they look in the mirror, I, I call it uh, messing up the curve. What I was doing was all right yesterday. and It was actually considered a little better than average yesterday. Oh, <laughs> until, until you came in here and just kind of wrecked everything. You remember that kid? For me, it was in the fourth grade. But you know that kid that would come in and remind the teacher that she said at the beginning of class that there was going to be homework, and we get almost through class, and there was no mention of homework ever again. And for me, that kid's name was Ted, and he would raise his hands and say, "Miss, Miss teacher, ma'am, uh, at the beginning of class, you said there were going to be homework, and you." We're almost done, and uh, you haven't mentioned homework yet, so I just wanted to find out what's the homework going to be. That messed up the curve for all of us. Yes. We found inventive ways to let Ted know at recess how much (laughs) we really appreciated Uh, his commitment to excellence. That's the way we handle things in the fourth grade. I've come to realize that that... What we thought was performance anxiety back in the fourth grade, that continues even in adult in adulthood. When someone comes in and and messes up the curve and and reestablishes what what good looks like and what good sounds like, if I recognize that I can't compete with that, rather than up my game, it's a lot more convenient for me to just take shots and poke and poke at the person who just came off stage. When have you seen that in display and it's just, it was just clear to you that that's what was going on? Well, I think uh, just look at society in general.
0: Let's, let's stay on the topic of money. Listen to these terms, filthy rich, filthy rich, really, right? It's almost you putting a negative connotation on extraordinary results. Another one is overachiever. Oh, you're an overachiever. Why? Because you're doing significantly more than I am. And in order for me to normalize my dysfunction or lack of performance, I'm going to make you out of freak of nature and call you an overachiever. Here's another one. Side hustle. Right? So there's no place in the Bible, IRS code, or any place that says you're only allowed to have one job at a time. Matter of fact, most of your wealthiest people are serial entrepreneurs They have multiple streams of income and they don't call it a side hustle. They call it an alternative stream of income and they wouldn't dare be caught without it. But we marginalize it by calling it side hustle, by calling you an overachiever, right? And are calling you filthy rich. Here's one for you, Galen. The only people who routinely use the term, overachiever, call other overachievers, are those who are consistently underachieving. That's just an observation I made. I don't know. You may may have seen something different. But but I I would have never seen a Richard Branson or a Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or someone like that uh, call somebody an overachiever. Why? Because they've achieved great things in their own right. And this person who's doing a lot is the tribe that they come from and associate with. So that's normal behavior for them, not overachievement. So those are examples we see every
1: day. You're breaking a lot of rules, man. You're not supposed to be, sh- you're not supposed to share this information with everybody. <laughs> I'll tell you another, another rule that I see you break a lot, and I'm just gonna expose you right, right here, right now, because and it must be this blood oath that I'm drinking, because I'm just gonna put your secrets out here in the streets. I don't know if you've heard this, Wyman, but you're not supposed to mix business with religion and mix both of those with family commitments. We're supposed to be keeping those things separate. And when you're at work, you're not supposed to talk about your faith. And when you're when you're in the church, you're certainly not supposed to be talking about money. And in both of those situations, you're supposed to keep your family out of it. And every stage I've seen you on It seems like you haven't heard those rules because you don't conform to them at all, ever. Why is it that you seem to reject this idea of separation of church and state?
0: Well, you know, yes, I have been accused of that routinely. I cannot deny who I am. My name doesn't change depending on which audience I'm speaking to nor does any other facet of my being. So if you want the authentic me, if you want me with regards to the truth in a holistic sense, you'll get all of me. And and what I tell people is, you know, God does his best work Monday through Friday on the battlefield of work. It's on Sunday that we celebrate what he did on the battlefield. So you just can't bring him out on Sundays and expect to have something to shout about. The battles are being fought between the hedges and the lines of work, you know, Monday through Saturday, nine to five or whatever the field of play is for you. And when it comes to extraordinary achievement and leadership, when you sit down to plan, the fact that God is with you to help you think, that can give you witty ideas and invention that can't come up within your own strength or education, you have to make provision for Him. In other words, imagine yourself sitting down at the table and pulling up a chair for God to have a seat. And as you get ready to plan your your, uh, mode of attack with regards to economics or anything else, you make sure not only does he have a seat at the table, but you give him a chance to say something Mm -hmm. and direct you, right? So that's a mindset. So one of the things that, again, you ask all the time, who's on your board of directors? That's straight out of the book, you know, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And always say, God is on my board of directors because all wisdom, all truth comes from him. The vessels, right, whether it be Abraham Lincoln, you know, uh, Napoleon Hill, anybody, their wisdom comes from God. So what I say is, I'm cutting out the middle man. <laughs> I'm going straight to the source. And as far as we're on the faith thing, you let me know if I'm out of bounds here, right? But I believe that, that Jesus died so we can have a relationship with the Father, direct relationship. And he says, this is not me, this is, don't get mad at Wyman. He says, if any of you lack wisdom or knowledge on anything, all you have to do is ask and I'll give it to you in abundance and I won't hold back. Now that's the kind of person I want on my board of directors. And by the way, wisdom that comes from the third heaven where God is will always exceed any wisdom that you can find that's earthbound. I I can't help it. So (laughs) if you want to be successful, you got to acknowledge the source of all knowledge, wisdom, understanding, revelation,
1: which is God. Mm -hmm. You you sound like You're in scripture, but you don't have that whole, you don't have scripture talk. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when when you go to church, everyone seems to have this same Same. dialect. Everyone sounds the same. They don't sound like they sounded on Friday. They all have this similar church talk. I don't hear that from you. So is this something that you're just committed to not learning the church speak? Because you sound like you're speaking in everyday language, everyday English. But you're talking about scriptural and spiritual things. I don't get it, man. Yeah, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. So therefore I've
0: never thought about an answer before, Galen. Yeah, so you're in the penalty box again.
1: It's the bourbon talking.
0: <laughs> but I would I tell you this, you know, as a Christian, I understand that Jesus didn't die to establish a religion nor did he die to establish a church in the form of brick and mortar or denominations. He died to reestablish a relationship with God to each of his children, regardless of which nationality it may come from or background. Once you accept him as Lord and Savior, you got that relationship. And when he gives you divine revelation from upon high, you will speak it in your native language. So if you came from the Bronx, right, the revelation is going to have a Bronx accent. If you came from, you know, Cajun country, it's going to have a Creole accent. If you came from Texas, it's going to have a Texas accent and colloquialisms and examples. When Jesus talked to carpenters, he, he talked about pitching a tent, tent makers, pitching tent, carpenters, no you know, leveling things, farmers. He talked about sowing seed, Whatever environment they came from, that was the language that he used because that made the revelation he was trying to impart better able to be received by those on the receiving end, right? So it's not something you intentionally do. Here's a great example. If you speak a second language, when you learn the second language in the beginning, you must First, think about what you're going to say in your native language. Do the interpretation in your mind, and then you speak. When you become fluent in that language, you think in that language. So when you have your mind is transformed to the mind of Christ, you no longer need the WWJD bracelet because there's no interpretation required because you're automatically thinking with his mind, you're seeing with his eyes, you're hearing with his ears, and there's no translation necessary because you are the embodiment of the spirit of him in you.